You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Those of you out there who came to hear Dr. David Siemens, and those of you who are in television land out there, who were hoping to hear Dr. David Siemens, you did the right thing. That's a wise and prudent way to invest uh, the next hour. And Dr. David Siemens is one of the great speakers in our holiness tradition. And I myself was looking forward to him. By now, of course, you have grasped that something is terribly wrong. (laughs) Your hearts have sunk. All I can say is that I'm as sorry as you are. Look, it does remind me of something funny that happened one time. I don't know, 20, 22 years ago, I, I can't recall. They all, they all, the years, they're rolling together in my poor old mind. But 25 years ago, uh, Dr. Kinlaw was the president, and he was scheduled to speak in chapel. And for some reason, and I don't remember why, he had to cancel. And I think I must have been on the next chapel not, not for myself, I was probably doing some little uh, introduction of the Salvation Army Band or some harmless thing, you know, I couldn't do any great damage. But in any case, I was the next name on the list. So the dean called me the night before and said, well, Dr. Kinlaw's canceled, uh, can you step in? Hmm. Well, understand that in those days, the faculty all used to sit, well, first of all, they all came. <laughs> And secondly, they all sat right here, the first three rows. So, and when Dr. Kinlaw spoke, oh, they were every last one there, you know, Johnny on the spot, hanging on every word, taking notes, you know, they were just awestruck. Their motive for always coming to hear the president, you know, I'm human beings, they had mixed motives, it hardly matters now. The point is there they all were. Well, imagine how they felt when I got up. I mean, they knew me. Actually, one of them had the courage, I always admired this, had the courage to get up and walk out. The rest of them were too embarrassed to do that and and sat there. Uh, This morning, I'm going to speak on the first two Beatitudes, part of the Sermon on the Mount. But before I do that, by way of a little prelude, I'd like to remind all of us, as I'm happy to remind myself, that when our Lord was among us, when he was among us in the flesh, walking and talking and ministering and preaching, he relied on illustrations and analogies and symbols that were familiar to his hearers so that it would appeal to them and they could learn from them. He avoided a theology and philosophy, much to the dismay of the Pharisees, because they hoped to trip him up that way, and much to our eternal gratitude because we can understand from these little, these little analogies, little, these little examples that he used. He, he talked about fish and stones and eggs, serpents, things, figs, and so uh, simple things that people could follow. I believe if he were alive today, in the flesh, moving among us, he would use the analogies, he would use examples that have some meaning to us. Wouldn't be probably figs and serpents and and boats anymore, and almost certainly wouldn't be. It would be things we know and we struggle with, like computers. (laughs) He would use computers. And one of the first lessons that you learn from computers is that you have to read the directions. This is actually one of the first lessons you learn in life, but with computers it's essential because one little semicolon and the whole thing, you know, you send your email to Osama bin Laden or something. (laughs) 
And I have an illustration of this that actually happened last week. I wanted to play a, one of my music CDs in my computer. It was uh, the Talking Bible or a Praise and Worship course or something. But I wanted to pray, uh, play it in my CD. I mean, in my computer. So I decide, I can figure this out. How hard can this be? So I get on the uh, screen. I'm going to figure this out myself. So I'm clicking and I'm tapping and I'm clicking and I'm moving my mouse. And I go to program and I go to accessories and I go to entertainment and I go to audio. Oh, this sounds perfect. And so I click on that. Well, eventually, after about an hour of fooling around, I've got it so it will permanently record on my hard disk what is on the music CD, which, of course, I have not yet even put in. So I'm in despair. In desperation, I decide to read the, the directions. Get out the directions, read the directions. Here is the whole entire instruction. Insert CD. <laughs> you insert the CD, it plays the music automatically. <laughs> I may just say in passing that for some reason, this lesson about reading the directions is, is gender specific. Men will not do it. I'll figure it out. I'll break it first. Whereas women immediately read the directions, master the whole thing, and take over. <laughs> well, knowing that I was going to speak this morning and wanting to redeem the time that properly should have been uh, Dr. Siemens, who was such a powerful, moving, eloquent uh, exponent of our tradition, I decided, and also this is an opportunity, an opportunity for me to demonstrate once again my devotion, slavish devotion to our beloved uh, ever-popular Wesleyan Armenian tradition. Kill two prints with one stone. So I went to the directions, the standard sermons of John Wesley. <laughs> actually, there's two volumes, but I just wanted to carry one as a, as a visual aid here. I actually bought these books in 1970. When I first came, the college was celebrating uh, Francis Asbury centennial. And so there was all sorts of uh, Wesley paraphernalia for sale cheap. And these books were just $6 for two of them. And they looked real good. I figured, oh, these would look wonderful on my shelf, enhancing my reputation as a believer in Wesleyan holiness at no cost to myself. Well, $6. Now, I have to confess that I never actually read them. I, I mean, think about this. Uh, the Standard Sermons of John Wesley in Two Vines is not the sort of book you pick up for a little idle reading of an afternoon. In fact, it's not the sort of book you pick up at all, <laughs> unless you're a seminary student, or marooned on a desert island with only this book for company, <laughs> and a soccer ball. Mindful of my responsibilities this morning, I actually did turn to it. And to my surprise, to my great pleasure, to my gratitude, I found out that this is a wise and wonderful book. There is much in here of great value and, and usefulness. For instance, did you know that John Wesley preached 13 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount? 13, uh, a set of 13 sermons. Uh, he wrote them, actually put them together when he was sailing to America uh, on a ship called the Simmons. He was going there to become a missionary in 1735 itself, a, a, an interesting and adventurous story, but I won't take time with it. But in between the time, most of the time, he was huddled in a little terrified ball, praying that the Lord wouldn't let him drown like a rat. But those times when the ship wasn't tossing around, he was writing these sermons. Uh, he preached on these, he used these, these 13 sermons, or in some form, combined some of them, all his life. Uh, he returned to this theme over and over and over again. Well, you might wonder why. Could it be that he had, you know, 13 good sermons? He'd already gone to the trouble of writing them. Why write new ones? Just go back to the old sermon barrel. Who's going to know? Would that not be a disappointment? 
that, that our, our sainted Wesley used the same sermons over and over again. Another one of our idols with feet of clay. The great John Wesley, a lazy toad. <laughs> no, that's not the reason. The reason he returned to this theme over and over again, I discovered by reading the first in the series, is that John Wesley believed the Sermon on the Mount was, and I'm quoting, the sum of all true religion. The sum of all true religion. He uses that phrase over and over. Well, twice in the first sermon. <laughs> the, the, this is the sum of true religion. Well, I think to myself, perfect, just the ticket, the sum of true religion. And so that's what I'm going to speak on this morning. My text is Matthew, the fifth uh, chapter, verses one through four. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. First word that pops out, to me anyway, is disciples. Notice when our Lord gathered together the multitudes, his disciples in front, his disciples were those people to whom he was speaking. They were disciples. They were not just hearers of the word, but they were doers. They weren't just listeners, they were, they were followers. They were more than followers. They were what Samuel Logan Brangle, who was a Salvation Army holiness preacher, that Mr. Miller had a wonderful composition centered on Brangle's, uh, some of Brangle's words, the old recording, I think, uh, I think it was two weeks ago. Brangle called uh, disciples, true disciples were love slaves. So this is a message, the Sermon on the Mount is a message that's primarily directed towards persons who are our Lord's disciples. A number of holiness uh, writers have suggested or stated outright that holiness uh, is a gift, it's a message, it's a revelation for those that are already saved. That uh, persons that are not saved, don't know the Lord as Savior, the message in the Bible for them is to repent of their sins and to accept Christ's atoning work. So that this, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is, according to Wesley, is directed at disciples. And that certainly seems to be what the text says. And so the next word I want to turn to is blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. Actually, the word that's translated as blessed is better translated happy, which I personally much prefer as a word, happy. It's a good beginning to a, to a discourse, the, the eight Beatitudes. Happy. That's a very promising beginning. Happy. Uh, it actually is a better translation. And as fond as I am of the King James Version, actually blessed is better translated happy. And to make sure I was right about that, I looked in three different other commentaries along with Wesley, and that's the case. It's better translated happy. Uh, happy would have meant to Wesley, he would have looked to Dr. Samuel Johnson's dictionary. That, would, that was the contemporary dictionary that Wesley would have looked at. And happy was defined there partly as a, as a fortunate circumstance. And, and that does fit into the larger meaning. But the larger meaning is that happiness Scriptural happiness, the happiness that the Holy Spirit is using here. Happiness is that state in which every desire is satisfied. It meant that also in Latin, beatus. When, when the Romans spoke of beatification, it was that state in which every desire was satisfied. Every holy desire, every God-honoring desire, every honorable desire is satisfied. That is what holiness is. You are in a state of perfect rest. You are in a state of perfect peace. You are in a state of perfect joy in Christ. Happiness is a state in which uh, every desire is gratified. It does not mean cheerful. It does not mean particularly, it does not mean, as we would have it mean, chipper. <laughs> Some people have chipper personalities. Chipper, happy, is not necessarily, there's no logical connection between chipper 
and the Holy Spirit. <laughs> chipper is an accident of birth, and not everybody finds Chipper equally appealing. Uh, <laughs> Those little smiley, happy faces, Chipper. Ah. <laughs> Yuck. Does not mean that. Doesn't mean cheerful or chipper. It means that state in which every desire is satisfied. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit are offered the gift, the promise, uh, the power of holiness. This does not mean, and poor in spirit does not mean embracing poverty. It can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. There's no necessary connection. Doesn't mean people who renounce the goods of the world. Most of the things in the world, most of creation, all of creation was intended to be beautiful and good, and most of it still is. Most of the things in the world that might be rejected by a person who took this to mean physical poverty would be things that were beautiful or things that were morally neutral, had no, had no significance. Renouncing them would be, have no spiritual benefit. The poor in spirit that the Holy Spirit is referring to here, or the Holy Spirit's words here, poor in spirit, is poverty of spirit. Uh, Wesley believed that poverty of spirit, by which he meant humility, was essential, it was the essential foundation for all the rest of Christian, Christian teaching, that it was an essential first step towards being saved and being sanctified. Humility, uh, different ways of looking at it, but the, the way I thought was most helpful, the most helpful to me, was that it's self-awareness. Humility is self-awareness. Uh, being poor in spirit in the scriptural sense is, having a, is being humble, uh, not being self-effacing and meek, not conjuring up lacks that you don't really suffer from. Oh, I'm nothing. It's not that. It's not some false kind of uh, social uh, self-denigration. It's not that. Uh, it can reflect itself in that, but it is, there's no necessary connection between that sort of social humility and true Christian humility. True Christian humility is self-awareness. It is an acceptance. It is an awareness. Uh, it is knowledge that ego, self-will, uh, pride are fatal obstacles on the path to Christianity. They are fatal obstacles on the path to uh, the saving embrace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Humility is an awareness of sin and failure and helplessness. Blessed, happy are uh, the poor in spirit, the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Really beautiful little phrase uh, that I found in a book by a man named uh, G.A. McLaughlin, old-time holiness preacher. And he said that the glad servants of the Lord Jesus Christ have the kingdom of heaven in their hearts, a kingdom of perfect peace and perfect joy and perfect righteousness. Second beatitude, which follows very logically from the first, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I want to linger a little longer on this one. Because blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted, is the first scripture verse I ever read, or at least the first I ever remember reading. Uh, I was not given over to reading scripture when I was 10 years of age, and nor were any members of my family. They were faithful, and I believe they were Christians, but they attended at that time, and so did I, a church which has since changed, but at that time, its entire activities were conducted in Latin. So that uh, if I was hearing any ver verses, I wouldn't have known. One of the few moments I was awake during these services, I... <laughs> wouldn't have known what I was hearing anyway. But I remember, finally, I saw a scripture verse in English. Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I saw it in a funeral parlor. Uh, my grandfather died when I was 10 years of age. He'd been perfectly healthy. Well, not, obviously, but we thought he was perfectly healthy on one Thursday, I think. I don't remember. And th that night he died. Died of a massive heart attack. His aortic arch burst. 
and he died very briefly, just in an hour. First time I ever knew anybody to die, and certainly first time anybody close to me died, and he died as a relatively young man. Seems young to me now, anyway. So we all went to the funeral parlor, and we walked into the lobby, and I remember on the far wall, every, this was such a shock to me and such, an, uh, such a, a you know, powerful experience that every part of it burned itself in my memory. Uh, I've been to funerals since, I'm sorry to say, and they have not had this dramatic effect. But this was my first time, and I was just terrified. I really was just paralyzed. But anyway, on the far wall of the funeral parlor lobby was a round picture. It showed Jesus. He had a, a blue coat on and a white sort of undergarment. And he was kneeling. Some of you may have seen this. He was kneeling at a rock, and there was a beam from heaven. And there in gold letters, blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we went into the rest of the services. I have to just say, again in passing, that from that day to this, funny, lingering effects of childhood memories, from that day to this, the smell of cut flowers has reminded me of death. Uh, I also have never liked, from that day to this, those little keyboard organs they have. <laughs> Not these powerful, well-played, beautiful pipe organs, but those little, you know those little ones they have in funeral parlors? <laughs> Blessed are they who mourn. The Holy Spirit reminds us throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, that we live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that is subject to the mechanical laws of science. And these mechanical laws of science, these, these principles, operating principles of nature, prey upon the just and the unjust. Everyone will suffer, everyone will die. And the scriptures remind us over and over again that when this happens, we fall back on, uh, if we're people of faith, we fall back on the unchanging love of God. You may not know this, but experts in child psychology, some experts in child psychology, say, that making reference to death is a topic that is particularly disagreeable to young people, such as yourselves and the four or five adults that are here. <laughs> particularly disagreeable. And the reason it's particularly disagreeable to you is that you suffer from twin absurd delusions. One is that you are the center of the universe. <laughs> and the other is that you're immortal. Now, I don't happen to believe that. I've worked with young people for many years. I know some of you. And I do not believe that's true. I personally have never in my life known a young person who believed that he or she was the center of the universe, and I have never known one who believed that he or she was immortal. You are too aware, too aware of life and too aware of the, of the promises in scripture to believe that. Aware, by the way, is a buzzword. It was a buzzword. It's been replaced by new buzzwords. Bonding is a new buzzword. <laughs> but aware used to be a buzzword. You are too aware of God's unchanging grace to, be, to suffer the delusion that you're the center of the universe or that you're immortal. You do know, and the Bible teaches, that when inevitably a pain and loss and change and grief come to you, you have God's unchanging grace. And God's unchanging grace gives you a sense of proportion that you will evaluate everything in your life against God's will, God's word, God's Holy Spirit against eternity, and it gives you always an unconquerable hope. But mourn has other meanings. And in fact, and this I never would have guessed if I had not read, again, I refer to the sacred text, Wesley's Standard Sermons. If I hadn't looked at those, I would never have known this great fact. 
The mourning that the scriptures are speaking of in this beatitude does not refer to loss, to temporal loss. Um, Wesley regarded people who were overburdened with the sense of temporal loss, a death would be a good example, the best example of that, uh, were simply wrongheaded. Wesley cared very little for that. In terms of losing someone you love, in terms of mourning over death, it gets exactly five lines in five pages of dense text in this first one of his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. Wesley regarded people who grieved over much as people who were mopey. Mopey, those are his words, mopey and melancholy. Actually, it was the Victorians in the 19th century that made a great deal about death with wearing black for a year and uh, great piles of flowers and people fainting at graveyards and all. Wesley's day, people took death as much more routine than people later did or certainly than we did. And in fact, Wesley's approach to death is, is traditional. From the time of our Savior until 150 years ago, uh, people looked upon death as, uh, as perfectly routine, as, as the inevitable and not even very surprising or, unex or, or exceptional end to life. Wesley loved the Book of Common Prayer and uh, took great solace from the first words of the funeral service, the Lord hath given, the Lord hath taken away. S scriptural promise that they who mourn will be comforted does not refer to persons who are, or certainly doesn't primarily refer, very little refers to persons who are suffering grief over the loss of a loved one. What it does refer to is a, a sense of loss over the absence of God. Mourning in this sense, mourning in this sense in the Beatitude is grief that you are separated from God's Holy Spirit. I never realized that. But the whole point of this beatitude is that people grieve over a loss of God. They have a, they have a deep grief that they are somehow separated from God. That's the whole point of our Lord's, part of our Lord's discourse at the Last Supper. In the Gospel of John, he says, you mourn now because I'm going away, but I will return to you and you will rejoice. So when we think of blessed are they that mourn, happier they that mourn, well, that doesn't seem to make sense. It's a paradox. No, it is not a paradox. The Holy Spirit offers to those who mourn for the loss of God, who know their humble in spirit, they know their own sin, their own willfulness, uh, their own perversity, their own pride has separated them from God. Holy Spirit promises that such a one will be blessed with peace to their wounded consciousness. They will be blessed with peace to their wounded conscience. A wonderful, joyful promise. And then finally, this mourning is mourning for the sins of the world. It is grieving for what sin has done to God's creation, which was intended to be beautiful and which is damaged and broken and subject to these natural laws I told you about, which now can bring good, do bring good generally, but also can bring fortuitous and miserable circumstances, disease and, and death. And mourning for God's children, for their sin, for their separation, for their loneliness, for their frustration, for their confusion, for their doubt. Uh, mourning for God's children that are marginalized, that are left out, that are ridiculed, uh, that are lonely, or they're uh, ashamed. Or worse, grieving for those who are lost, who every moment are pouring over the abyss into eternal damnation. Which brings me to uh, observe that from the very start, there has been a fundamental unbroken tie, basic in the structure of the holiness tradition, has been its close ties uh, to world missions. Those denominations that are specially committed to understanding and preaching, experiencing and understanding and, and, and preaching holiness are also have been over time, or the congregations within larger denominations have been over time, the ones that are most committed to world missions. And the tradition at Asbury College, 
as a mission-oriented, service-oriented, outward-flowing-oriented communities. Never more so than now, I'm not just speaking about the past. That is a fundamental part of the tradition of this school and this tradition from the, from the very start. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Comforted. They will have peace, which is based on trust and obedience. And they will have the joy that passes understanding. It can be experienced, but it cannot be explained. I personally think that one of the many great strengths of the charismatic tradition is that charismatic people experience the infilling, delivering, liberating joy of the Holy Spirit in ways which fill them with, fill them with glee, fill them with happiness, fill them with a sense of joy and praise. They experience this. They cannot and do not trouble to explain it. They experience it. It's a, one of the many strengths of that tradition. In 1 Corinthians, we know from 1 Corinthians that comfort will have our, have our faith strengthened and have our hope focused and be filled with love. Love for God and love for our fellow human being. And finally, I want to point out to you something I also wouldn't have known. It's just been a treasure house of things I never knew. I really commend this book to you, that the Greek word for comfort is also can be used and is used for call, for I call, so that Christ's Holy Spirit promises that he comforts those whom he calls to him. Those who come to him, respond to him, to know pardon, to know peace, to know eternal life, he comforts. He comforts those who follow him. He, he leadeth me, O blessed thought, O peace benign with comfort fraught. So I will close by saying that you may go. Be humble, be mourners for your own sin and for the sin of the world. Be comforted, be led, and rejoice forevermore.